Hey there. Welcome to March. I'm your host, Keith Farley. Still trying to figure out a way to take a raft out on these atmospheric rivers we're having in California and inviting you to peel an orange, put your feet up, and settle in for another collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythm of the seasons. Our show today is about springing forward. Double Batch Daddy are here to help us feel that hum as the world springs back to life. We'll hear a story about the dangers of spring, especially if you happen to live in the city of love. We'll check in with a collection of 9, 10, and 11-year-olds and hear what's on their minds and in their hearts. John Ballinger and Laura Martin help us put winter behind us as they sing us into a sunshine day. And later, we'll look at some of the giddy ways cultures around the world shake off the winter doldrums and take a turn toward the light. So, here we are. A proverbial stone's throw away from the spring equinox when daytime and nighttime are in perfect balance. Although with the clock shifting an hour ahead, we might not feel that balance for a few days yet. Sunrise in Los Angeles came at 7.07 this morning, and it sets at 6.58 this evening. Plenty of extra time to take a dinner out onto the patio or the front yard, if you don't mind eating in the wet and cold. So, balance. It's the natural state of things, or so they say. Everything in nature is attempting to achieve balance, and if we look at things from a macro point of view, if we can zoom out and see the much larger picture, I suppose we'd see a universe that's spinning and expanding just as it ought to. Similarly, if we zoom in down to the atomic level from which we're made, we'd see a very similar pattern of flowing and spinning. Why then does balance feel so difficult to achieve? After all, there are only two days each year where the day and the night are perfectly balanced. Every other day is either a little lighter or a little darker than the day before. The Earth doesn't sit perfectly balanced on its axis. It's a little bit off, which is exactly why each day is different from the day before. Over time, it all balances out, but day to day it can feel like we never know what to expect. You ever try to practice balancing? Ever watch a tightrope walker sway back and forth as they slide their feet along a one-inch braid of hemp? Ever try a pirouette? Ever attend a yoga class and try holding tree pose where you stand on one foot with the other foot pulled up and tucked against its thigh? You probably find that one side is easier than the other. Same with the pirouette. With practice, though you find that balance is more easily achieved the less you actively try to do it. You can't force your way to balance. You have to discover it. That being said, you can't take balance for granted either. It's a delicate state that is easily shattered if you're not paying attention. And isn't that a paradox, a conundrum? How can it be that we can't achieve balance by working at it and that we'll lose our balance if we're not paying attention. If there is an answer to these questions, and that's a big if, I think it boils down to learning to trust that balance is not a constant state of being, but that it's ultimately the way things work out. 
Let's go back to space for a sec. Comets fly around and pound into other objects. In our bodies, cancer cells, bacteria, viruses might attack our immune system. We've been pumping smoke into our atmosphere for over a hundred years now, and the Earth is responding to those actions. It's Newton's third law. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction in order to bring things back to balance. That last bit's a little addition on my part. Can you accept that vision of balance that it's simply actions reacting to each other? Maybe you'll learn to embrace the Buddhist teachings of mindfulness and release your attachment to outcomes like good and bad and simply seek to accept things as they are. Or maybe you'll learn trust by observing the poppies as they come into abundant bloom on the hillside. Notice how they don't have to work at being more beautiful than they already are. Perhaps you'll simply trust that the cold of winter will give way to the warmth of spring. And there's nothing you can do to force it along. But you can pay attention and notice the buds as they form and the weather as it warms. Or you can just be still and enjoy the fleeting moment of spring balance as it passes through. Maybe it's enough to just sit back and feel that hum. I start to feel that hum. Out of a dead quiet comes a little strong. The ancient song is true. And every molecule to me is singing it with you.
All creation sighs. When a caterpillar's turned to butterfly yeah. And now a brand new song rings true A brand new song rings true And every molecule to me is singing it with looking for stories of spring fever this month, and wouldn't you know it, the best one I found came from a French author. It's from the mid-19th century, which means it features some mildly outdated notions of male and female relations, but it's still charming and funny enough that I decided to include it anyway. So, come with me to the land of wine and cheese, the birthplace of café, society, Monet, Matisse, and the Can-Can. Let's take a little audio trip to Paris, shall we? This is Guy de Montpassant's short story, In the Spring. With the first day of spring, when the awakening earth puts on its garment of green, and the warm, fragrant air fans our faces and fills our lungs and appears even to penetrate to our hearts, we experience a vague, undefined longing for freedom, for happiness, a desire to run, to wander aimlessly, to breathe in the spring. The previous winter, having been unusually severe, this spring feeling was like a form of intoxication, as if there were an overabundant supply of sap. One morning, on waking, I saw from my window the blue sky glowing in the sun above the neighboring houses. The canaries hanging in the windows were singing loudly, and so were the servants on every floor. A cheerful noise rose up from the streets, and I went out, my spirits as bright as the day, to go... I did not exactly know where. Everybody I met seemed to be smiling... An air of happiness appeared to pervade everything in the warm light of returning spring. One might almost have said that a breeze of love was blowing through the city, and the sight of young women whom I saw in the streets in their mourning gowns, in the depths of whose eyes there lurked a hidden tenderness and who walked with a languid grace, filled my heart with agitation. Without knowing how or why, I found myself on the banks of the Seine. Steamboats were starting for Suren, 
And suddenly, I was seized by an unconquerable desire to take a walk through the woods. The deck of the Mouche was covered with passengers, for the sun in early spring draws one out of the house in spite of themselves, and everybody moves about, goes and comes, and talks to his neighbor. I had a little girl neighbor, a little work girl, no doubt, who possessed the true Parisian charm, a little head with light curly hair which looked like a shimmer of light as it danced in the wind, came down to her ears and descended to the nape of her neck where it became such fine, light-colored down that one could scarcely see it but felt an irresistible desire to shower kisses on it. Under my persistent gaze, she turned her head toward me and then immediately looked down while a slight crease at the side of her mouth that was ready to break out into a smile also showed a fine, silky pale down which the sun was gilding a little. The calm river grew wider. The atmosphere was warm and perfectly still. But a murmur of life seemed to fill all space. My neighbor raised her eyes again, and this time... As I was still looking at her, she smiled decidedly. She was charming, and in her passing glance I saw a thousand things which I had hitherto been ignorant of, for I perceived unknown depths, all the charm of tenderness, all the poetry which we dream of, all the happiness which we are continually in search of. I felt an insane longing to open my arms and to carry her off somewhere so as to whisper the sweet music of words of love into her ears. I was just about to address her when somebody touched me on the shoulder, and as I turned around in some surprise, I saw an ordinary-looking man, who was neither young nor old, who gazed at me sadly. I should like to speak with you, he said. I made a grimace, which he no doubt saw, for he added, It is a matter of importance. I got up, therefore, and followed him to the other end of the boat. And then he said, Monsieur, when the winter comes, with its cold, wet, and snowy weather, your doctor says to you constantly, Keep your feet warm. Guard against chills, cold, bronchitis, rheumatism, and pleurisy. And then you are very careful. You wear flannel, a heavy greatcoat, and thick shoes. But all of this does not prevent you from passing two months in bed. But when spring returns, with its leaves and flowers, its warm, soft breezes, and its smell of the fields, all of which causes you vague disquiet and causeless emotion, nobody says to you, Monsieur, beware of love. It is lying in ambush everywhere. It is watching for you at every corner. All its snares are laid. All its weapons sharpened. All its guiles are prepared. Beware of love! Beware of love! It is more dangerous than brandy, bronchitis, or pleurisy. It never forgives, and it makes everybody commit irreparable follies. Yes, monsieur. I say the French government ought to put large public notices on the walls with these words. Return of spring. French citizens beware of love. 
just as they put beware of paint. However, as the government will not do this, I must supply its place and say to you, beware of love, for it is just going to seize you. It is my duty to inform you of it, just as in Russia they inform anyone that his nose is frozen. I was much astonished at this individual, and assuming a dignified manner, I said, Really, monsieur, you appear to me to be interfering in a matter which is no concern of yours. He made an abrupt movement and replied, Ah, monsieur, monsieur, if I see that a man is in danger of being drowned at a dangerous spot, ought I to let him perish? So... Just listen to my story, and you will see why I ventured to speak to you like this. It was about this time last year that it occurred. But, first of all, I must tell you that I am a clerk in the Admiralty, where our chiefs, the commissioners, take their gold lace as quill-driving officials seriously and treat us like forecastle men on board a ship. Well, from my office, I could see a small bit of blue sky and the swallows, and I felt inclined to dance among my portfolios. My yearning for freedom grew so intense that in spite of my repugnance, I went to see my chief, a short, bad-tempered man who was always in a rage. When I told him that I was not well, he looked at me and said, I do not believe it, monsieur, but be off with you. Do you think that any office can go on with clerks like you? I started at once and went down to the Seine. It was a day like this, and I took the Mouchet to go as far as St. Cloud. Gah! What a good thing it would have been if my chief had refused me permission to leave the office that day. I seemed to myself to expand in the sun. I loved everything. The steamer, the river, the trees, the houses, and my fellow passengers. I felt inclined to kiss something, no matter what. Ah, it was love laying its snare... Presently, at the Trocadero, a girl with a small parcel in her hand came on board and sat down opposite me. She was decidedly pretty, but it is surprising, monsieur, how much prettier women seem to us when the day is fine at the beginning of spring. Then they have an intoxicating charm, something quite peculiar about them. It is just like drinking wine after cheese. I looked at her. And she also looked at me, but only occasionally, as that girl did to you just now. But at last, by dint of looking at each other constantly, it seemed to me that we knew each other well enough to enter into conversation. And I spoke to her, and she replied. Oh, she was decidedly pretty and nice, and she intoxicated me, monsieur. She got out at St. Cloud, and I followed her. She went and delivered her parcel, and when she returned, the boat had just started. I walked by her side, and the warmth of the air made us both sigh. It would be very nice in the woods, I said. Indeed it would, she replied. Shall we go there for a walk, mademoiselle? She gave me a quick, upward look, as if to see exactly what I was like, and then, after a little hesitation... She accepted my proposal, and soon we were there, walking side by side, under the foliage which was still rather scanty, the tall, thick, 
bright green grass was inundated by the sun, and the air was full of insects that were also making love to one another, and birds were singing in all directions. My companion began to jump and run, intoxicated by the air and the smell of the country, and I ran and jumped, following her example. How silly we are at times, monsieur. And she sang unrestrainedly a thousand things. Opera airs and the song of Musette. Oh, the song of Musette. How poetical it seemed to me then. I almost cried over it. Oh, silly songs make us lose our heads and believe me, never marry a woman who sings in the country, especially if she sings the song of Musette. She soon grew tired, sat down on a grassy slope, and I sat at her feet and took her hands, her little hands that were so marked with the sewing needle, and that filled me with emotion, and I said to myself, these are the sacred marks of toil. Oh, monsieur, do you know what those sacred marks of toil mean? They mean all the gossip of the workroom, the whispered scandal, the mind soiled by all the filth that is talked. They mean lost chastity, foolish chatter, all the wretchedness of their everyday life, all the narrowness of ideas which belongs to women of the lower orders, combined to their fullest extent in the girl whose fingers bear the sacred marks of toil. Then we looked into each other's eyes for a long while. Oh, what power a woman's eye has, how it agitates us, how it invades our very being, takes possession of us and dominates us. Oh, how profound it seems, how full of infinite promises. People call that looking into each other's souls. Oh, monsieur, what a humbug. If we could see into each other's souls, we should be more careful of what we did. However, I was captivated and was crazy about her and tried to take her in my arms, but she said, pause off. Then, I knelt down and opened my heart to her and poured out all the affection that was suffocating me. She seemed surprised at my change of manner and gave me a sidelong glance as if to say, Ah, so that is the way women make a fool of you, old fellow. Very well, we will see. In love, monsieur, we are always novices and women artful dealers. No doubt I could have had her, and I saw my own stupidity later, but what I wanted was not a woman's person. It was love. It was the ideal. I was sentimental when I ought to have been using my time to a better purpose. As soon as she had had enough of my declarations of affection, she got up, and we returned to St. Cloud, and I did not leave her until we got to Paris. But she looked so sad as we were returning that at last I asked her what was the matter. I am thinking, she replied, that this has been one of those days of which we have but few in life. My heart beat so that it felt as if it would break my ribs. I saw her on the following Sunday, and the next Sunday, and every Sunday. I took her to Bougival, Saint-Germain, Masson-Lafitte, Poissy, to every suburban resort of lovers. The little jade, in turn, pretended to love me. 
until at last I altogether lost my head, and three months later, I married her. What can you expect, monsieur, when a man is a clerk, living alone, without any relations or anyone to advise him? One says to oneself, how sweet life would be with a wife. And so, one gets married, and she calls you names from morning till night, understands nothing, knows nothing, chatters continually, sings the song of Musette at the top of her voice. Oh, that song of Musette, how tired one gets of it. Quarrels with the charcoal dealer, tells the janitor all her domestic details, confines the secrets of her bedroom to the neighbor's servant, discusses her husband with the tradespeople, and has her head so stuffed with stupid stories, with idiotic superstitions, with extraordinary ideas and monstrous prejudices, that I, for what I have said applies more particularly to myself, shed tears of discouragement every time I talk to her. (sighs) He stopped, as he was rather out of breath and very much moved, and I looked at him. I felt pity for this poor, artless devil, and I was just going to give him some sort of answer when the boat stopped. We were at St. Cloud. The little woman who had so taken my fancy rose from her seat in order to land. She passed close to me and gave me a sidelong glance and a furtive smile, one of those smiles that drive you wild. And she jumped on the landing stage. I sprang forward to follow her, but my neighbor laid hold of my arm. I shook myself loose, however, whereupon he seized the skirt of my coat and pulled me back, exclaiming, You shall not go! You shall not go! In such a loud voice that everybody turned round and laughed. And I remained standing motionless and furious, but without venturing to face scandal and ridicule. And the steamboat started. The little woman on the landing stage looked at me as I went off with an air of disappointment, while my persecutor rubbed his hands and whispered to me, You must acknowledge that I have done you a great service. Can't you hear him calling your name? Ooh, I think I'll go 
right now The summer sun's calling my name I, I just can't stay inside all day I gotta get out, give me some of those rays Everybody's smiling Sunshine day Everybody laughing Sunshine day Everybody partying Sunshine day Everybody's dancing Sunshine day Everybody's smiling Sunshine day Everybody happy Sunshine day Everybody, everybody Sunshine everybody, 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 everybody The Rhythm of the Seasons is a true labor of love. I spend a lot of time laboring to bring these podcasts to you, and I do love it. Thanks to your generous donations, we've been able to pay the bills for our website, logo, and even share a tiny little bit of money with the folks who contribute their time and talents to make this podcast what it is. Namely, a chance to check in with the world as it moves through its endless cycle of birth, growth, withering, death, and new life. If you like what you hear... If you take something away from this podcast, an idea, a song, or just a laugh, we invite you to join Hope from Hollywood, John from Celebration, Florida, Shadow from Fairlawn, Ohio, and Tim and Barbara, my parents, from Sacramento, by making a contribution to the cause. It's easy. Just head to livefromtheloungepodcast.com. That's livefromtheloungepodcast.com and hit the donate button. Every dollar you share with us goes right back into the creation of this podcast. Thanks in advance for your generosity. Last month, we started a new series called The Seasons of Life, where we ask five-year-olds a few simple questions. What's on your mind? What's your favorite meal? What makes you happy, sad, angry, and afraid? What's your best memory? And what do you hope for the future? Throughout this year, I'm going to pose these questions to people at various stages of life. High schoolers, college grads, working professionals, retirees, and our elders. But this month, we focus on kids who are just finishing up elementary school. It's a precarious time when you're just about as smart as you'll ever be, but you still have a lot to learn. My name is Orly Espinosa. I'm 10 years old. My name is Otto, and I am 9. Hi, this is Mary here. My name is Logan, and I'm 10 years old. What's on my mind is this upcoming Wednesday, I'm going to a sleepaway camp for school, and I'm really nervous about it because I don't know how it's going to go. What I'm thinking about a lot lately is the show that I'm in, James and the Giant Peach. I am playing James. And I just think about, do I have rehearsal today? If so, what do I, what am I doing at rehearsal today? Am I going to work on my lines? Am I going to practice my music? I think about that a lot lately. What is on my mind right now is the fact that my mom just emailed a friend of mine to see if he can come over today. What's on my mind is my new stop motion that I made with my friend Spencer. I'm thinking about dance recitals and just how I'm going to do. I have a lot of things on my mind right now, but one of those things is I'm extremely exhausted. (laughs) I'm so busy and always, like, stressed or in a rush, and so I'm always thinking about 
one of the things I have to go to, like rehearsal or I have an audition or dance class or homework or something that's happening. And I'm always thinking about at least one of those things, getting in my head about it and then realizing, oh, shoot, I'm doing this right now. (laughs) The most favorite meal I've ever had was probably having pizza at a brewery with all my friends because it was a very awesome experiment. Um, My favorite meal is when I need a comfort food, I love a hot bowl of pasta, penne pasta. I love it with some butter, some salt, some pepper. And I also love chicken nuggets. I know it's basic, but who doesn't love chicken nuggets? Am I right? Uh, The best meal I've ever had is Korean barbecue because I love to, like do it yourself and like actually make your own meat take two probably the most favorite meal i've ever ate was um probably pizza at a brewery because it was a really fun experiment why let me know at my dad's work the best meal i've ever had is you know i can't decide i love family dinners and then sometimes when we go out to see shows or you know, a nice family occasion, we'll find like a nice restaurant, and that's always nice, especially with family. The best meal I've ever had is between schnitzel and Benny's tacos. Take three. (laughs) Probably the most favorite meal I've ever done. Just end it. My favorite, like, restaurant, like, always go to, probably In-N-Out, just because it's easy and fun, and they have really good fries. Probably the best meal I've ever eaten was pizza at a brewery company with all my soccer friends after a really big win, and we were all celebrating, and it was just really fun, and the pizza was great. What makes me happy is hanging out with my family and friends. Um, theater makes me happy. I love theater so much. It makes me so happy. Um, hanging out with friends, being around friends who I know care about me. Um, I love when I know I feel so cute and I love my outfits and stuff. Puppies. Puppies are so cute and I really hope, wish I had one and I really want one. When there's something to do and there's a stop motion to make with my iPad and being able to play with friends. Being with my friends makes me really happy, especially when we're in a space that we love to bond over. What makes me happy is... All my friends and my family, because I feel like they're really cheering me on. It makes me sad when I see other people sad, so I'll try to comfort them. Um, I'm like, oh shoot, now I'm crying, <laughs> now, now I'm sad. People being mean to me makes me sad and angry. I think my room can kind of make me sad, because it's not messy, but it's kind of unorganized. I still live in it. I still work in it. I still function in it, but it can make me sad sometimes. What makes me sad is when I see someone else getting hurt or being hurt myself. Not just mentally, but also physically. When I have nothing to do, no friends are are able to play. I get very angry when people don't listen to me. Maybe I'll like say something and I'm, t- I'm trying to tell a story to my friend and they'll interrupt and I'll be like, what? I-, I was trying to finish my story. And that makes me so angry. Uh, it's a big pet peeve of mine. 
What makes me angry is sometimes my sister, but I still love her. My hair can drive me crazy. It can make me so mad, like, when it's not cooperating. Because my hair needs to look a very specific way for me to actually like it. So when it doesn't work out, I just get really mad. What makes me angry is when my when I can't noogie my sister. <laughs> my sisters don't tell the truth. When I see really stupid things go on, it makes me mad. Like someone erased someone's art to make some new art. Or when I see homophobic people, it can just make me mad and stuff and angry. What makes me afraid is just creepy things. What's creepy? Vecna. I'm afraid of um, falling on my face at rock climbing team. Being alone in the dark. I get really afraid when I feel very pressured or it's hard for me to, li- to deliver something. I start to then panic and like get my, my palms get sweaty and like that's when I'm like, oh, I'm afraid alert, afraid alert. I'm really bad at math and it stresses me out. So that kind of makes me scared for math in like high school and stuff. What makes me afraid is that we're not all ever going to be alive. One of my best memories is when I went on vacation with my family to Hawaii, and that was super magical. We got to stay at a really nice hotel, and we were having so much fun. Um, I didn't want it to end because I was having so much fun, and that's one of my best memories, and I love to look at pictures from that trip and go, oh, hey, that was the time when we did this or did this, and that was super fun. My best memory was when I had a play date with Mia, and then we went to Cleo's house, and we went around to her house, and then she came back to Mia's house, and we got to play tag, and I think that will, that's a memory that will stick with me for life because I thought it was really fun. Making a droid at Disneyland. My best memory is uh, the first time I ever went to the playoffs in soccer. My favorite memory is probably when my parents surprised me that I was going to go to Legoland for my birthday because I was like totally not expecting it and it was on the drive there because like we were gonna go pick up my dad and all of a sudden we just go to Legoland and my mom's like look at read the sign I'm like oh my gosh oh my gosh it was like really it was really funny but also really awesome. Going to New York for the first time that was a nice memory. My first show Cat and Hot Tin Roof that's a really good memory. Uh, the Mallory Pool, my neighborhood pool, um, hanging out with my friend there, like, such a good memory is from there, and I'm excited to make more. In the future, I hope that I become a stop-motion producer in Leica Studios, because I'm already doing that now in my room, and I feel like it's meant to be. For people, for others, I hope that they can be recognized for who they are. Um, And for myself, I hope to just succeed in being, like, a good person. Like, be a good person. That's my mantra. When I go to high school, I hope that I get into GSA, which stands for Governor's School of the Arts. It is a school where half of the day you go to your regular classes, and then the other half of the day you take a bus to the school and you do art. You 
audition for a certain kind of art, and then that's what you do in high school. So I hope I get in there for theater. I hope uh, maybe to be a professional dancer. That would be really cool. My hope for the future is that there is no more war. These kids are busy doing plays, singing, dancing, playing sports, creating stop-motion animations, and hoping for a world that'll be more inclusive and peaceful. Next month, we'll be talking to middle schoolers, I hope, if we can pry them away from homework, friends, after-school activities, and convince them that they're not going to say something stupid. Question. Do you still get giddy? Do you ever get so excited about something that you simply can't contain yourself? When you think about going somewhere special with all of your best friends, do you find yourself giggling uncontrollably? Do you ever dance around with wild abandon when the thought of a thrilling event comes into your head? I'm pretty sure I don't anymore. I get butterflies sometimes. I still get a little tingle when I return to Dodger Stadium after the winter and I step out from under the concourse and see the field and the San Gabriel Mountains for the first time. But I don't cry out in ecstasy. I might sigh, but I don't cry. I do have strong and fond memories of giddy moments from my past, though. I got so excited on my 29th birthday walking with all of my best friends after we'd just entered a theme park that I broke out into a sprint down the path toward the first roller coaster. It's fairly easy for me to give myself over to music at a concert or a wedding, but the moment of ecstatic jubilation that I remember most vividly and most fondly was riding my bike home from school one day in March and getting a big whiff of orange blossom. After months of rising in the freezing darkness to deliver a hundred newspapers, after half a year of fighting rain and wind to and from school, the sweet smell of spring jolted me awake from my long winter's nap. <gasps> Look, the trees are starting to bud. Look at all the people out working in their yards and the air. It's so cool on my skin, but the sun is also so warm on my face. I couldn't help myself. I stood up on the pedals of my Nishiki 10 speed and burst out singing. Spring! The sun on my face feels like spring. Ring-a-ding-ding. -ding. The flowers are blooming. It's spring. It's all coming back now. We're all back on track now. Welcome, welcome, spring. That memory of spontaneous wild abandon came flooding back to me as I started to look at spring traditions from around the world. For they're all about losing, or more aptly, loosing oneself from the cold, dark shackles of winter, turning toward the light, taking in the sun, and rising. In Teotihuacan, Mexico, folks gather at the base of the Teotihuacan Pyramid at sunrise on the first day of spring. They dress all in white, and many of them climb the 360 steps to the top. There, they raise their hands to the heavens to soak up the energy from the sun on the spot where the Incas believe 
the entire universe sprang from. Easter comes early this year, on April 9th. But if you really commit yourself to the disciplines of the season of Lent, if you're willing to abstain from some of the things that bring you pleasure, if you're willing to deeply follow Jesus from the day he pissed off both the religious leaders and the politicians by expelling the money changers at the temple through his arrest after the Last Supper and the horrors of his crucifixion, the ecstasy contained in the symbol of the resurrection on Easter Sunday can be quite ecstatic and profound. Brunch doesn't really do it justice. In northern India, they celebrate the coming of spring with a festival called Holi, where people gather in the streets and just simply go bonkers. The party starts the night before with huge bonfires. There's a Hindu story that goes along with it, having to do with funeral pyres and such, but like most of the intricate tapestry that makes up the Hindu cosmology, it's really complicated, and I'd just be screwing it up if I tried to explain it. Suffice to say, the fire serves as a symbol for burning away all the things that are holding you back so that you can start unburdened by the past. The fire also symbolically burns all your inhibitions away, and this leads to folks taking to the streets in huge numbers, cranking up the volume on some dance tunes, and pelting each other with colored powder and water balloons. Red powder symbolizes love, green stands for new beginnings, yellow is for health, and blue represents the divine power of Krishna. We talked a little about the Iranian festival of Nowruz back in January. The word Nowruz literally means new day. This New Year's tradition starts by putting your house in order with a deep spring cleaning. The festival lasts for 13 days where people, once again, take to the streets, build fires, in this case, leaping over them and singing out a phrase that roughly translates to, fill me with your red color and take away my sickly pallor. Some folks climb a mountain with huge lit torches and throw them into an enormous bonfire while fireworks explode all around them. It's also a good time to get out of the house and visit family, renew connections with your friends. But the tradition I want to focus on comes from Gloucester, England. It's a tradition that only goes back a couple hundred years. It's a tradition closely connected to the economy of the region. It's absolutely bonkers. And it has something to teach us about our attitudes towards getting things going in spring. It's the Gloucester Cheese Rolling Contest. In Gloucester, a region of England famous for its cheese, a couple dozen competitors climb to the top of a steep, muddy hillside surrounded by hundreds of onlookers. Calling it a hill, though, doesn't really do it justice. It's actually closer to a cliff or a double black diamond ski run. An officiant enters at the center of the scrum, a wheel of cheese in hand. They roll the cheese down the hill, and the gathered participants try to chase the cheese to the bottom. And once again, chasing? Probably a misnomer. They don't really chase it so much as tumble down the hill after it. The cheese really has the advantage here, being that it has a circumference and all, whereas we humans are gangly beasts with appendages that fly every which way. 
The Wheel of Cheese is simply called upon to do what wheels have done since the beginning of time, namely roll and bounce without a care in the world. The humans frequently roll and bounce, too, albeit much less carelessly. Last year's winner of the Gloucester Cheese Rolling Contest succeeded by taking a page out of the cheese's playbook. Her name is Abby Lampy, and she's from North Carolina, USA. She was taking a year in Spain after her college graduation, and she decided to make a side trip, especially for the cheese rolling contest. And her strategy was perfect. She took two steps off the ledge at the top of the hill and simply tumbled the rest of the way down. Not head over heels, but sideways, like rolling over in bed, only really aggressively, but also without any extra effort at all. She simply let gravity do its work, and she let her body go along for the ride, spinning, bouncing, and tumbling her way to victory. Abby was covered in mud after the race, but she got up smiling. She was bruised, but elated. She had a plan, and she executed it perfectly. She had dressed head-to-toe in baggy clothing to protect from scrapes. She tied her hair in ponytails to keep it out of her face. I'm sure she kept her eyes open all the way down to roughly gauge the terrain as it flew past her. But the key to her success is that she never fought against the hill. She quite literally rolled with it. It might be said that Abby Lampy, recent college graduate from North Carolina, won the Gloucester cheese race by successfully setting her internal cheese free. And that's the invitation of spring, my friends. Set your cheese free. We've spent January and February and much of December and November, if we're being honest, cooped up indoors, pelted by rain, hail, and snow for months on end. Travel has been impossible. The sun has been a stranger. Nothing's growing in the garden. And if we're being honest, some of us have grown a little pale and stale as well. If we're smart, though, If we're connected to the rhythm of the seasons, we've been planning for this moment. The moment where we attempt something that others might perceive as being a little crazy. We've prepared for it. We've studied the steep hill, muddy and soft, and we've concocted a plan so that when it comes time to climb that hill and then to turn around and step right off the ledge, knowing full well that there's a strong chance we're going to get dirty and bruised, we're ready to roll with it. Most folks will never take the chance. You're crazy, they exclaim, or you'll get hurt. Why would anyone do such a stupid thing? Those people, however, are more than happy to stand on the sidelines, safe and warm, cheer you on while you take a step into a world of experience they can never imagine. And then there are those who have not planned well. They throw themselves off the top of the hill wearing only swim trunks. Or they adopt the mistaken idea that this is a foot race that can be run just like a 200-yard dash. These are the folks that end up ravaged by the unexpected and unplanned-for realities of the race as it actually is. 
they never think to plan for things like gravity, rocks, and sticky mud. They just hurl themselves off the cliff without a care, and many are carried off the hill on stretchers. And they're the ones who'll sow fear into countless others and keep them from even starting to think about taking a chance. And then there are the folks who play it safe. They actually fight the race they've chosen to participate in. They lay back, thinking they can make it to the bottom just by digging in their heels, or literally half-assing it to the finish line. You see a lot of these folks stuck just below the top of the hill, scrambling to get back up to the start line, or slinking off to the sidelines with their heads down. The winners, though, and most of the folks who make it to the finish line, able to stand their bruised bodies up, hold their muddy heads high, and share a giddy smile with the gathered crowd, are the ones who had a plan, knew what they were getting into, embraced the fact that bruises and scrapes are part of the equation, faced their fear of failing, took a step into the unknown, and rolled with it. Put simply, they were unafraid to set their cheese free. This spring, as we spring forward, springing into action with a spring in our step, may that be said of us all. Set your cheese free, my friends. Set your cheese free. March. The month that comes in like a lion goes out like a lamb, and in the middle is a bit of a wet dog. Here's the Who Did What. The Rhythm of the Seasons is produced by Ann Kloss Farley. Double Batch Daddy wrote and performed Feel That Hum. John Ballinger arranged and performed Sunshine Day with Laura Martin on vocals. Charles Dayton provided the soundscape for The Big Question and earn special thanks for taking pomp and circumstance out, even though it was really funny. That song still haunts me from playing it at high school commencements. Special thanks to Miri from Norfolk, Otto from the west side of Los Angeles, Logan from Folsom, Frank from Northridge, Maddie from just up the street, Orly from Culver City, and all the kids I couldn't include but who volunteered to be part of our ongoing series called the seasons of life. And I'm your host, Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with another collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythm of the seasons. 